Well, we're continuing our um, series in the second half of the summer, Hope for Fruitful Service. Thank you. And um, we uh, introduced this last week, and by we, I mean mainly Pastor Josh introduced this last week, talking about a broad overview of a look at spiritual gifts. In short, spiritual gifts are impartations of the Holy Spirit given to all believers. In other words, all Christians get at least one gift the moment they surrender to the Lordship of Jesus and receive forgiveness of their sins. This gift is to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, the church writ large. And though Scripture doesn't claim to provide an exhaustive list of these gifts, several are listed in different points of God's Word. And we're taking some time to highlight a few of them. The one we're going to be talking about today is the spiritual gift of giving. The spiritual gift of giving. And we'll look at it from two angles. First off, we'll look at it broadly. The passage speaks of it broadly, the principle of generosity. And then we'll also look at it specifically. In other words, the gift imparted by the Holy Spirit of giving. It's a matter, the spiritual gift of giving, that's relatively close to my heart. I grew up in a household uh, where both of my parents, as far as I can tell, had and have the spiritual gift of giving. And this is seen in, in multiple examples. One of the most profound is the number of times that they have been audited by the IRS. And that's not a joke. They've been audited multiple times by the IRS for the stated purpose of no one could be this generous. So literally, the government looks at their giving and they're like, no, there's some sort of uh, scheme going on here. They're laundering money or something. But um, so they come in and my mom not only has the gift of generosity, she also has the spiritual gift of administration. So she has uh, what's called a checkbook. And those checkbooks have behind them, for the generation who might not know what this is, carbon copies. And you can actually save these spent checkbooks and keep them in, if you so choose, a moving box. And you can have as many moving boxes as you want, my mom discovered. And so she has just heaps and heaps of moving boxes filled with spent checkbooks of like every interaction she's ever made since she got her first checkbook, which was probably like 13 or something like that. And so when the IRS comes and is ready to audit my parents because they're, quote, too generous, my mom gets like a unique fire in her eyes, like, okay, let's go. Let's see if I can get, <laughs> let's see if I can get this government agent. And she's gotten them every single time. All right, back to the subject at hand. The spiritual gift of giving is a matter that's close to my heart, and my parents are a clear example of that. But to look particularly at this gift, I'd invite you to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to take a look at a, a dynamic passage that talks poignantly about the concept of giving and generosity broadly, but also we can get into it most specifically. And first off, it's, it's fun that we get to study giving within the context of spiritual gifts, isn't it? I just, I love that we get to get into this. But as we're looking at it, I also want to give a bit of context into 2 Corinthians as a whole. So 2 Corinthians would lend to the fact that this isn't the first letter written to the church of Corinth. This is believed to be likely the fourth letter written to the church in Corinth. And this is a beloved church of Paul's. 
He's sending it because dissenters had come into the church and were trying to draw their hearts away from the true gospel and towards these dissenters. He, they were trying to discredit Paul and say, who is Paul? We are the greater sophists. We're the greatest speakers. We're way better than Paul. Look at him. He's suffered greatly. Obviously, his life is a testimony that God is not behind him. And Paul writes this letter to say, I am an apostle. It's a defense of his apostleship, but it also shows his great love for this church. Now imagine you and I are incredible friends. We're we're really, really good friends. But then someone else comes into the scene and starts to draw your heart away from me and even sows seeds of dissent within our friendship and begins to talk about, well, Stefan's not really your true friend or else he would, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't um, confront you so many times or something to that effect. Well, what if I get an opportunity to try to buy you back, try to win you back as a friend? What do you think would go into that conversation? I'd probably talk about, look at all the ways I've sacrificed for us. Look at all the ways I love you. Do you think that money would come up in that conversation as I'm trying to win you back? Do you think that as I'm trying to win back you as a friend, I would say, hey, remember that one time you promised me $3,000 for me to go on this missions trip? I'd like to take this opportunity to really hatchet that down and really make sure that gift happens. So let's hash out some details as it is right now. Do you think that would make it into that particular conversation? Well, what's interesting is 2 Corinthians talks extensively about the concept of giving, even specifically giving money. And it's within the context of him trying to buy back these dear people close to his heart. And that's where we tend to pick up this passage. So please follow along with me, if you will, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to narrow in on verses 5 through 8. So 2 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. Hey, remember that money that you said you would send my way? Now's a good time to get that all hashed down. So he's talking about that, and he says, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. This is the word of the Lord that we're going to be walking through this morning. And with the time we have remaining, let's consider four essential attributes of giving, specifically as it pertains to this passage. The first point provides a context into generosity writ large. And then the following three points talk about what it looks like to walk out the spiritual gift of giving or this generosity, just to prepare you for what's coming. So this first point is going to be broad in general. The next ones are going to be action steps, for lack of a better term. So the first aspect of giving is that generosity is presumed for Christians, There are some gifts that you either have them or you don't have them. And there's a pretty good reason not to place folks in positions where that gift would be a necessary aspect of that serving position or what have you. For instance, someone who lacks any leadership ability, whether natural or spiritual gifting of such, probably shouldn't be placed in a position of leadership, right? If they can't lead, probably shouldn't put them in a position of leadership. Or someone with no ability to teach shouldn't be shifted into a serving position where teaching is required. 
But there are some spiritual gifts where a select few will have a profound blessing in that area, but it's an expectation of all Christians to have components of that attribute, and giving is certainly one of those. So first, let's take a look at a broad concept of generosity before looking at the gift of giving. We see that generosity is an expectation of all Christians. In other words, we can't make excuses for a lack of generosity. You can't decline. You can, rather. Let me put it that way. You can decline to serve as the administrator of the church's budget because you know that if I were put in a position of administrating our church's budget, it would, it would be a race to see whether bankruptcy or the IRS gets us first. You just know your tendency is like, we're, we're, I'm going to sink that ship really fast, so don't put me in that position. But there's no such excuse regarding giving. So if God has blessed you financially and you hear that your brother-in-law is going to go off into the mission field and he comes and he says, hey, I'm going to go be giving the gospel to this people group. Would you mind partnering with me financially? You can't say, well, God made me a part of the accounts receivable department. You can talk to accounts uh, payable for that particular request. Or when someone sees you playing Candy Crush on the couch and they're coming in with handfuls of grocery bags and say, hey, Would you mind lending a hand to all this? You can't retort and say, well, God didn't give me the spiritual gift of generosity, so I'm going to continue playing Candy Crush. And we could go to a lot of passage to show the universality of generosity among Christians, but John's first epistle utilizes the gospel of Christ to show us how this is so necessary. He says this, we know love by this that he laid down his life for us. He goes right to the gospel here. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But then he goes to something that seems to be so much lesser. He goes to material goods. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. One of the signs of being a Christian is generosity. Christ's work is necessary in two respects here. Number one, Jesus functions as the model of generosity. We see that in this passage along with the Gospels as a whole. We know what giving is because God so loved the world that he gave. That's how we know what giving is. Specifically, he gave Christ that we may have salvation in him. But Jesus' life was one of exemplary sacrifice of his time, of his talents, of his treasures, as we tend to phrase it here, time, talents, treasures. Not only do we know love by what Jesus did, and as the passage states, but we know generosity because of Jesus' life. But secondly, Christ functions as the agent of generosity. So Jesus certainly is the example of generosity, but he's also the impetus behind any possible generosity. If it is essential and emblematic for a Christian to show genuine generosity towards others, then the opposite must also then be true. Those outside of Christ would be incapable of showing genuine generosity, and I mean genuine in a very strong sense. Certainly there are counterfeit generosities, The same is true for all fruit of the Spirit, for all spiritual gifts. There are counterfeit manifestations of these attributes. But gospel-like generosity requires the work of Christ in our lives. We need Jesus if we want genuine generosity. 
And as it's displayed, as we talked about, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave us his son that we may have life in him and have it in abundance. And if we do not have spiritual life, if we have not yet come to Jesus for salvation for our sins, then generosity of our part is not even a possibility. We have no capacity within ourselves. Like I said, he is the impetus behind any genuine generosity. And if for that matter only, I would beg you, if you have not done so, bow the knee to Jesus and receive not only the capacity for genuine generosity, but also life and life in abundance because we worship a God who gives generously and gives freely. So we see that giving is an expectation of all who are in Christ, but also it is an imparted gift of the Holy Spirit. Giving is a gift. We see it specifically listed among others in Romans chapter 12, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportions of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, but then we have it listed here. He who gives with liberality, he who leads diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Someone who has a spiritual gift of giving will display a unique level of liberality, a word that in the Greek has a great deal of meaning. Its primary purpose is to convey sincerity or genuineness, but it also includes generosity. And you have likely seen what this person is like, someone who has the spiritual unique gift of giving. They're often the first to pull out their billfolds when the check comes by. They're they're the most eager to offer up their spiritual giftings when the opportunity presents itself and so on. The engagement ring that my wife wears is a perpetual reminder of the gift of giving. Back when I was in college, I was a part of a uh, Greek, I don't speak Greek, um, but Greek as in like fraternities and sororities. So I went to school back at Iowa State University, and there was a collegiate push within the Greek land to give the gospel as a whole and not as individual uh, sororities and fraternities. And so I led a Bible study that was comprised of multiple men in different fraternities. And as I was closing one of these Bible studies, we took prayer requests at the end, and I said, there's this gal in Lafayette. I'm pretty crazy about her, and I want to put a ring on it, but I don't have the funds to back that particular desire in my heart. So if you would just pray that God would uniquely work something out. So we prayed, and then one of my friends came up afterwards, a guy in my group, and he said, I have a ring. And I was like, pray tell. And so he started talking about this ring, and he said, I I had a girlfriend, and she went down to a missions trip in Florida, and we would call, you know, every night, and one of those nights that we called, she broke up with me out of the blue, inexplicably. And he said, every time I was driving in my truck, I wanted to take this ring and throw it out the window, and so I gave it to my mom and put it in her house, so there it lays. But I knew that we were going on a, um, on a, to a conference a little bit there afterwards, and so he said, obviously my answer to, do you want a free ring was, Yes, I'll take the free ring. Um, And so he said, since we're going to this conference, my mom's house is actually on the way. Let's stop by there, pick up the ring, and then continue on. So the day came for us to go to the conference. We were driving on our way there. And at a certain point, he started giving us directions away from the conference into his mother's house. And we subsequently pulled into a trailer park where we went up to his mom's single wide trailer. And he went in, brought out this rather expensive ring and gave it to me. And I learned that day, first off, I was totally blown away by this level of generosity. I learned that day that generosity is not a a matter of means, but a disposition of the heart. I had a friend who was incredibly generous. 
You could have used any excuse. You could have said, my mom could use this money. I'm going to go sell it. Even I, I might not make what I bought for it, but I'm going to go and sell this and give to my mom. He could have said, I'm going to keep it for myself because I, I need this. But my friend had an incredibly generous heart. And that ring on my wife's finger is a perpetual reminder of that generosity. But our passage makes it clear this generosity is spoiled through covetousness. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. What then is coveting? We know that it made the list of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. We know that Paul used it as an example of the efficacy of the law. He says, I wouldn't know what coveting was until the law said, do not covet, and then it stirred up that in my heart. So coveting is profound. But we also know, according to James 4, that coveting is something that each of us struggles with. Coveting is, in effect, sinfully desiring for yourself something that somebody else has. So you are are discontent with your life and you're jealous of hers. You want what she has. You're fed up with your car, and you believe you'd finally be happy if you had that Corvette that you torturously drive by on the way home from work every single day. You're fed up with um, all of your life and want what other people have. You want her looks. You want his talent. You want her kids. You want his physique, so on and so on and so on. Coveting has eyes to take. Generosity has eyes to give. So coveting looks out and says, what can I have for myself? Generosity looks out and says, what do I have to give to others? No wonder these two are pitted against one another in this letter. For each of us to grow in our giving, we must identify the covetousness that exists in our lives. If James 4 is to be believed that it does exist in our lives, and then purge it from our hearts through the act of repentance, asking Christ forgiveness, forgive me for this covetousness. But then after that, we need to walk in generosity. One of the first steps towards this end is embrace the logic of giving. Here we now get to the action steps of what does it look like to walk out generosity or even for those who might be uniquely spiritually gifted in this area. How do I walk in this spiritual gift? I see it stirring up in my heart and I want to walk this out. There was was once a farmer who had a great deal of corn in September when he harvested and when that time came around. The Lord greatly had blessed his fields. Some of it he sold to various distributors to cover his costs, and some of it he retained as seed for the planting season when May would eventually roll around. But as the winter months came, that extra seed that he had stored away to use as replanting started looking pretty good. Though he had plenty for himself and plenty for his family, he thought to himself, Why should I go to the trouble of planting all this corn when I can eat it right now? Little by little, he dwindled that seed supply that he'd stored up. Cornbread, creamy corn, corn on the cob, Texas caviar, corn chowder, corn dip, corn chips. The list goes on and on and on. I feel like I'm in Forrest Gump right now. So he made all sorts of forms of corn. May finally arrives, and it's time to plant He's able to seed only one-fifth of his acreage he had squandered and consumed the other four-fifths for himself. What should that man expect when September's harvest rolls around? Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, according to our passage. If you're not familiar with 
agriculture. Sowing is the act of putting a seed in the ground. Reaping is once you uh, extract it after it's come to fruit. In other words, we are to view our resources as a means and not an end. View that which God has given you as a means and not an end. What is this right here? I'm not trying to trick you. You can give the answer. It's a $20 bill. For those who can see the denomination, I wasn't going to print off a one-hunt print as if I'm printing money. Um, this is recorded, so I have to be careful lest the IRS come after me. <laughs> I was going to withdraw a $100 bill, but I am, after all, still on a uh, pastor's budget. Plus, I didn't want a mad rush um, once I held up a $100 bill. Um, but it's, it's clearly a $100 bill. Uh, $100. This is clearly a $20 bill, okay? Now I'm fumbling over my words. I'm deceived. But, but let's adopt the language of our passage according to verse 6. What is this? This is a seed. This is a seed. And as we know with any seed, there are only a few things we can do with it. We can use it to sustain ourselves, number one. Number two, we can squander it. In other words, let it rot, like if you were to store it up in a bin and allow it to just dwindle. Or you can do what with the seed? You can plant it. So three options here. You can consume it, you can squander it, or you can plant it. And you can substitute money for time or talents as well. It doesn't just have to be treasure for our purposes here. And of course, there are other possibilities outside of these three. You can have your um, seed, you can have your money stolen, as was my fear if I had a hundred up here. There are other options. But if we look at that first, to consume it for oneself, that's necessary due to the way that the Lord has created us. We are dependent beings that require food, shelter, clothing, etc. And each one of our dependents will require the same. It wasn't wrong for the farmer to sell a good portion of his crop in order to cover the costs, nor was it wrong for him to consume a reasonable amount for himself. The same goes for us. We can use a modest amount of what the Lord has given us to ensure we have what is required to sustain us. But there are even occasions to enjoy the excess of what the Lord has given us. Covetousness, however, can lead us to consume more than what's pleasing to Christ as we dig into that which the Lord would have us plant, which happens to be our second example. So secondly, so first off, we can consume it. Secondly, we can squander it. Each one of us is guilty of this, allowing it to rot. Some kind of crazy examples would be if you bought your third jet ski for your family of two and you put it up in your, your shed and watch it slowly succumb to time and entropy, or when you watch that fifth consecutive episode for the fourth day in the row of that one show, we sit idly by as our schedule and as our brain rots away, or we can also allow it to squander it by squirreling away our finances into a static bank account. In so doing, we watch inflation and subsequent generations gradually consume that fickle storehouse. Lastly, we can plant it. So we can consume it, we can squander it, or we can plant that which the Lord has given us. There are many obvious ways to accomplish this and produce lasting produce. You could invest the gospel through the giving of missionaries, just like Pastor Josh had mentioned in his pastoral prayer. We've got individuals who are ready to go out to lands far and near to administer the gospel to individuals. And if I have the means to give to strengthen the hands for those individuals to give the gospel to others, why would I not do that? You yourself could invest your time into evangelism or your um, 
your, your currency of friendship into administering the gospel to those who might not know it, or discipleship, so forth. You can invest in the church, the bride, through the involvement and sacrificial giving of the local church, which is the stated purpose for spiritual gifts. Right now, there are people who are giving of their talents and their time to watch my children. I'm incredibly grateful for that. And there are people who are incredibly sacrificial in so many ways in this particular church family. We have seen that, and we are incredibly grateful for that. You can invest in the lives of others with your time, your talents, your treasure, freely giving to anyone who is in need. What will you do with your seed? I do want to provide a caveat. This is not a health, wealth, prosperity message. In other words, I'm not going to tell you if you put your seed of $20 into Faith West's coffer, you will reap $100. That's not what I'm promising at all. God's promise is that those who bountifully reap, or sow rather, will reap bountifully. You may know what you sow, but he doesn't always say what you will reap. You may generously give of your time to the homeless shelter, shamelessly proclaiming the gospel to anyone and everybody there in your time outside of work. But what you reap from your perception of things is rejection among those who you're sowing the seeds of the gospel to, and then outside of that, loss of your job. God may be using you as a blunt tool to break the ground at that place for the gospel, and he may allow you to lose your job for the purpose of gaining incomparable wisdom or your blessing may not be on this side of eternity. It may be thereafter. We may know what we sow. We don't always know what we will in turn reap. I can't give you the specifics. I can only give you the promise. And I can also call you to trust God with all that you have. What did that farmer lack? Certainly, he had a lot of issues. He lacked foresight. He seemed to lack self-control. His covetousness led him to lack seed in the end and so forth, but he also lacked faith. Those who have the gift of giving often have the twin spiritual gift of faith. They think, I can be generous with others because God's going to take care of me. I don't have to worry about what will happen to me. God's got that. So very often, people who have this spiritual gift also have incredible manifestations of faith. This is how David E. Garland explains the matter. Reluctance to sow generously, rather, then reflects a refusal to trust that God is all-sufficient and all-gracious. It also assumes that we can only give when we are prospering and have something extra that we'll not need for ourselves. Paul says that at all times, God provides for us. And with all that we need, so that there's never any time where we cannot be generous. Do we believe that? The farmer is entrusting his crop to the Lord as he puts it in the ground. You may not have a, a back, background in agriculture, but you don't need that in order to know that he doesn't cause the seed to sprout from the ground. That's the Lord's doing. It's a trust when he puts it in the ground. He can't cause the rains to come. He can't keep his crops from natural disaster. It is a trust to put that seed in the ground. He must simply place it in the Lord's capable hands, trusting that he'll provide what's necessary. The same goes for us. When we give of anything, we're necessarily not keeping it for ourselves, placing us in a position of relative vulnerability. As Christians, we entrust ourselves into God's capable hands every time we practice genuine generosity. But would you rather be in your hands or his? 
So first, each of us is to practice generosity, but some have that unique spiritual gifting of generosity. Second, trust that if you sow bountifully, you will also reap bountifully, which leads us to our third point. Strive for proper giving motivations. This is our second um, action step towards those who seek to give. In verse five, we see Paul setting up the facilitation of that bountiful gift to the Corinthian church that they had promised at an undisclosed time prior. After reciting a proverb of sorts in verse 6, he, pe- he picked up where he left off in verse 5, urging the church to act upon that particular conviction, saying this, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Since generosity is an overflow of a Christian's life, the Spirit will convict him or her when a need is presented. So in other words, when, a, when a, a need or an opportunity of giving is present, the Christian will naturally have a desire to give in one way, shape, or form as the Spirit would, um, would press him towards. And though that may be the case experientially, it's not necessarily what Paul is talking about in this passage. This purposing of one's heart that Paul's talking about has more to do with a standing conviction a predetermination towards generosity that serves as a credo in a Christian's life. Christ has been generous with me. I must be generous with others. Brothers and sisters, this is a declaration that each one of us must live by. While God has given our church several who have the spiritual gift of giving, all of us are expected to live genuinely, generously, To do this, we must repent of improper giving motivations. Paul goes on to say, we aren't to do this grudgingly or under compulsion. We've all done it, and we've had it done to all of us as well. You've had to move, and you've you've asked for the help of individuals, and they've come alongside, and you get two or three or a handful of people, and they bemoan the fact that they had to give up their Saturday the whole time as you're moving boxes, asking, is this the last box? By the way, I realized that my wife and I just moved. Uh, this is not a reflection of the people who helped us, by the way. We had like 30 college students show up, and they were all awesome, the opposite of what I'm describing here. But we, we've all been in those circumstances where you've asked someone to help, and they do it with eyes rolling, head back. Oh, I can't believe you're asking me to do this. That is certainly the definition of serving grudgingly. Or when you've had your second cousin twice removed who's come to you and asked again for like the 84th time, can you please loan me some money? I need to be able to feed my family. And then you say, fine, I'll give you the money. But every time you see each other in that that yearly um, family reunion, you bring it up. You say, hey, remember that time I gave you the $300? Remember that time I floated your family through that hard time? You're bringing it up over and over and over again. You have given under compulsion not joyfully. So when we see this in ourselves, either grudgingly or under compulsion, we need to what? Repent. Lord, forgive me for that heart that believed that this would be better than the other. Instead, be a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Many of you have heard people preach on this and know that cheerful is the Greek word hilarion and um, have heard interesting stories of how the plates can be passed in these churches, people laughing out loud as they're passing the plates. I'm not recommending that, but certainly God loves it when we give cheerfully. Again, we look to Garland for commentary. In the Old Testament, giving reluctantly or under compulsion is portrayed as canceling out Any benefit that could have been received from the gift while giving it with a glad heart promises reward from God. Listen to what Deuteronomy 15 says. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. 
Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Scripture, scripture rather, assumes that what is crucial is the attitude of the one who gives, not the amount. God, who knows and appraises our heart, values only those gifts that come as a free expression of the deepest part of our souls. If it's truly better to give than to receive, as Jesus says, then joy is the natural byproduct of giving. So make that predetermination in your heart to live generously, repenting of all forms of begrudgery or compulsion in your giving, but ensuring you're motivated by a joy in your generosity, looking to the source and example of giving. Earlier, I'd mentioned that Christ was both the model and agent of generosity. In other words, we know what giving is because of the gift of himself, and we're able to display generosity by his work of the Spirit within us. The final verse here in our passage drives these points home. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Even as we just saying, God is able. He's able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. We can trust him to provide for us as we draw from the source of all giving through his abounding grace. We're only able to be generous with others because God has been generous with us. Do you believe that? That's the only way we're able to be generous. And the specific attribute that's listed in verse 8 is the abundance of grace that God has lavished on us. Men and women who have the spiritual gift of giving seem to inexplicably abound in this grace, don't they? Those of you who know people who have this gift. Conversely, those who struggle with giving can lack in dispensing grace to others, which goes to show you can only draw water from a well that's filled. You know that from experience as well. In other words, those who are overwhelmed by the grace of Christ that's imparted to us, especially on the cross, will have an overabundance of grace to share with others. But for those who are underwhelmed or unaffected by God's grace, I think Pastor Josh had read my message before all of this based on his pastoral prayer. Those who are underwhelmed and unaffected by God's grace, gracelessness will be their obvious byproduct. You can't be that which you are not. As Christ's generosity is of itself a well that will never run dry, our passage literally says, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. What could possibly fall outside of that? He throws all these adjectives that he could possibly put into that. Everything, all, all of it. So let me put it to a litmus test. If you're not generous with the various seeds, and you can put them in the category of time, talents, and treasure if you so choose, if you're not generous with the various seeds that the Lord has given you, it can mean one of two things. One, though you are a Christian, you're not drawing from the deep well of God's grace in your life. You have an empty well. You're not seeing Christ's grace lavished upon you. You're not seeing the gift of God in his son. You're not seeing the gift of the spirit in your life. You're not seeing the gift of the manifestations of spiritual gifts in all of that. Therefore, a lack of even any sort of acknowledgement of this grace will result in the absence of grace in your own heart, ergo, a lack of generosity. So that's the first possibility. The second possibility is you are not a Christian and have nothing to draw with or from. Fortunately, the solution is the same for both. Embrace the all-sufficient and ever-abundant grace of Christ. And as our final portion highlights, model the ultimate example of giving. 
This all-sufficient grace is provided by God so that you may have an abundance for every good deed. In other words, there is action required in all of this. Jesus, our example, remember, for his part, didn't simply will our salvation. He accomplished it. Are you thankful for that? I know I am. I'm thankful he wasn't just sitting up in heaven being like, I wish someone would save these people. I'm glad he got down from heaven, got onto the cross, and bought it for us. Not only does he call us to walk in a manner pleasing to God, he exemplified perfect obedience to the Father during that earthly ministry. And as the first John 3 passage we talked about prior points out, it's not enough for us to have the gift of giving. We must encourage, engage rather, in giving with those around us. So where do you find yourself in this? Perhaps God has shown you as you take an inventory of the, the produce that God has given you. And you see, uh, there are areas where I'm consuming more than I ought to be consuming. Or I see times where I've just squandered things, squirreled them away, and I'm not utilizing them as the Lord would have. And these are the specific areas where I need to be planting and ensuring there is fruit that would manifest 30, 60, 100-fold, even as Jesus talks about it. Jesus brings up so many agricultural examples within his word, it's hard to not talk about them when preaching. And so if you take an inventory of your heart and all that God has given you and you're struggling with this, come talk to one of us and we'd be happy to point you in the correct directions. It won't always be give more money to us. (laughs) Okay, that's not the purpose of this. The point is we want you to give a good account and be a good steward of all that the Lord has given you. What's there to gain in giving? Jesus put it well. After sowing the seed of the gospel within the heart of an obscure Samaritan woman at a random well, he says this. Do you not say... There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. When, when uh, wheat gets ready to be plucked out, it gets this beautiful golden. I know you've seen it in the fields of Indiana. Look and see our world as such, as this field that is ready for harvesting, and desire to be a part of that. Utilize that which God has given you and say, I want to be a part of this already. He who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Whether you're talking about time, talents, and treasure or whether you have the gifting of giving or you are just called to be generous, what will you do with the seeds that God has entrusted to you? Let's pray. Father, just as we've mentioned, we can't do any of this apart from you. We know generosity because of your generosity. We know grace because of that which you have lavished upon us. So, Father, upon taking an inventory of my own heart, looking at all that you've given me, allow me to be a good and faithful steward of all of this. Lord, thank you for the gift of giving, and thank you for the gift of individuals in our church family who have this manifestation of the Holy Spirit and his gifting. I pray that you would strengthen their hands. I ask that you would refine them in this particular gift, and they would grow in stewarding it well. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would be generous. I pray that we would make that declaration in our hearts that our standing credo is going to be, God has been generous with me. How could I not be generous with others? May we be a people defined by this. May the world look and see that can't be, that they can't be that generous. There must be something different. And as they investigate, may they see that the gospel is that which makes the difference. We love you, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.